We're continuing on in Daniel. Um, we've been uh, looking at some of the different uh, the things that, that involve his interactions and his, um, uh, his resistance, as a popular word nowadays. Um, we've uh, seen how his viewpoint has contrasted with those around him, and, and, and that's kind of what the, our theme is this year, and, and, or at least the beginning of the year, we're going to be looking at our viewpoint as Christians, and I know we, we think uh, to, to look at how a Christian should view things, probably Daniel's not where we would go. Let's go to hundreds of years before Christ and, and, and look at, uh, at some guy here uh, in the middle of the Middle East, and, and that's uh, our example for, for vision, but uh, we're going to switch a little bit this week. Uh, our main hero is not in our scene this week. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that, actually. But this week we're talking about Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. You may know them as uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, and we're going to look at how their view contrasts with what is our common viewpoint so often. So we're going to begin by uh, looking at Daniel chapter 3. We're going to read uh, about half the chapters is what we're, we're looking at, um, or a little bit over half. Daniel chapter 3, verse 1, beginning. It says, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits, and its width was 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura, in the province of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of that image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before this very uh, interesting writing style here. Uh, but uh, they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar set up, and the heralds cried out loud, To you it is commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that the time for you to hear the sound of the horn and flute and the harp and lyre and the psaltery and symphony with all kinds of music, then you shall fall down and worship the gold image that the King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Well, at that time, all the people heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, and the symphony with all the kinds of the music, the people, the nations, and the languages. They fell down and worshipped the gold image with the, which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So that at, time, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke said to the king Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds, music which fell down, and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship would be cast into the middle of this burning fiery furnace. There, how, uh, there are certain Jews. You've set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regarding you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. So Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and in fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men in front of the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is this true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, 
that you do not serve my gods, or worship the gold image which I have set up. Well, now, if you are ready at the time, you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, you will fall down and worship the image which I have made. Well, then, good. However, if you do not worship, you will be cast immediately into the middle of the, firing, uh, the burning fiery furnace. And who is the God that will deliver you from my hands? Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, this is one of my favorite statements in this book right here, we have no need to answer to you in this matter. If this is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hands, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. And we're going to finish there. We're going to see the end of the story. Of course, we know the end of the story. First, I want to review, before we get into this, what we do not know about this story. We do not know how much time passes between chapter 2 and 3. Now, I will say that it appears to me to be some time. Because if you look at these two, this contrast, they show that there's kind of this trajectory between when Nebuchadnezzar really thinks something of Daniel's God and when he doesn't. It, it, I don't think this was the next week. Um, a lot of people draw a line between, uh, and that's another thing we don't know. We don't know what the statue is of. Some assume it was uh, based on the, the statue in his dream. Well, that would kind of seem like it was right after the event. A lot of people picture that. Uh, some people say, no, it was an image of God, probably the god Belmarduk, uh, or some other god. We don't know. We really don't know. There's a lot of things in here we don't know. But it seems that, that there is some time that has elapsed here, uh, where he's gone from humility before God to pride. Now, some people believe this, uh, uh, that this would be uh, a statue in his own image, because uh, there were, at this time, a lot of time, um, uh, the, the kings believed themselves to be God. I'm an emperor, therefore I'm God. Uh, and so, so they would make an image of themselves kind of uh, as a God and set it up. We don't really know. We don't know where this happened. There are a lot of opinions as to what the word Dura means. Was this a, 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 a name of a city? There were cities named that or similar. Uh, the word Dura means a wall or a rampart. So was this a, a plain that was nearby one of the walls of Babylon or you know where, where people could gather? We don't know. So as I say, we don't know a lot of things about this, and the good thing is, is that none of these things are important to understanding and taking the meat out of this event. Uh, what we are looking today uh, at is how we view the concept of risk, risk and reward. Uh, and to do that, uh, we're going to go through this, this passage uh, mostly. We're going to leave it a little bit here and there. Uh, but we want to look at uh, what we fear. What we fear mostly involves what you can lose. Now, we're going to talk about a couple of different types of fear. We can fear lots of things. Um, so he says, uh, whoever does not fall down in worship will be immediately cast into a burning, fiery furnace. So, so Nebuchadnezzar pretty much 
jumps straight to the thing that, that you really don't want to lose, which is your life. Right? That was their threat. Our fears tend to center around uh, our strong and most immediate short-term threats to things. That's what our fears are around. Well, life is pretty important to us, and, and we, we, that's a strong, a short-term thing. I look at, is this good for my life in the short term? Uh, however, uh, we can see that there are other things that, that might be... Um, I did not do that. There we go. Let's try that one more time. There we go. Daniel 3.12. He says, Certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. This is is the Chaldeans saying this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They don't serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And I told you last week that it wasn't going to take long. uh, for, For however long this was... These men have lost their thanks for, for Daniel saving their lives. They, they're already turned around, and as we said, it was, it's what, what have you done for me lately? And, and these men, why are they jealous? Because they've taken their position. And that's, that's another thing, uh, status or position. That's a short-term thing that, that is strong to us. And, 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 well, these, you know, had it not been their life that's in danger... It might have been their jobs that were in danger. And, and so, this is, well, look at these guys. Uh, you've put them in these important positions, and look, they don't respect you. And, and so, that's something that we often fear in our interactions with the world. What is this going to do to my position or to my status? Another thing that is important to us here, um, in Daniel uh, chapter 3, uh, uh, verse 7, he says, Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, and the lyre, and the, all this other stuff here, uh, and with all sorts of music, all the people's nations and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that the king of Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, we have to remember one of the things that's happened here is that in Babylon, they've, they've defeated everyone. We talked about this being really the first world empire at this time. There's Egyptians who've been taken slaves. There's Assyrians who've been taken slaves. There's Syrians who've been taken... I mean, these were dominant up until then. These were really important nations. These were strong nations. They're nothing in front of Babylon. So there's all this mixture of of people, but there's Jews as well. Now, uh, when we look at this, uh, we look at, I think, relationships are important. And I, here's, here's these three men, and they're in front of a lot of people, but they're in front of people that they know, that are bowing down or, or being tempted to bow down. Now, in the short term, they're going to have the approval, or, or it's, it's possible for them to have the approval of the power structure, which is the Babylonians. I can get approval. At the same time, they don't much risk losing the approval of these people. Remember what's happened. What, the reason they're, they're here is why? Because they bowed down back in Jerusalem. That's why they're here. 
They've been already doing this. So for the most of these people, it's not a big deal. Would you just bow down? And so there's this relationship, there's a struggle for relationship. Will you just do it? What are people around me that I know, that I care about, that are here? What will they think of me? Just, you know, and, and, and sometimes we're in these situations where people just get your head down, you're drawing attention on me because I'm here and we're related and all these things. I know a, a guy, uh, and, and he became a Christian. And uh, he had to tell his family, I don't go to pool parties anymore. There's all, all the whole families, I, I, don't, I don't do that anymore. And they're like, why? Well, you must be a holy roller. And it was difficult, his pressure from his family. I act a different way. We were talking about that in class, about purity. I act a little bit different now. It's not that... And, and, I don't want to make it sound like I'm better than you, but there's things that I can't do and be right with my conscience. Things have to change. That's what being a Christian means. So there seems to be, for these men, no real good reason for them to resist. They're not going to get anything out of resisting. They're probably not going to get much approval from the people around them. And they're only going to get disapproval from those who have the power to make their life extremely difficult. Well, those are the things that we lose. But there are other fears that we could look at. Uh, Another type of fear is the fear of technology. Here we go. Fear of inadequacy. We desire acceptance. It is a part of our makeup. It's not a bad thing. We want to be accepted. We are made, and I've said this before, we are made for groups. People will find a group. Loners will find a group. It'll just be a small one. Right? We'll find a group. We want to be accepted. We are surrounded by people that we don't consider to be awful people. Right? And you go to work, you don't consider the majority of the people that you're around, probably you probably have the one that you like try to avoid or whatever. But you're probably around people that are generally pretty good people. And much of our positive identity comes from affirmation from other people. We want to be... We want to have our work approved of by our bosses, say. Or, or we want to be... Whatever the thing is that, that you find important about you, you want other people to notice that. And so we don't want to endanger... And this goes back to really relationships... But we don't want to endanger that by acting out of the ordinary. There's a, there's a, a, a motivation to, to, let's not ruin this thing. This seems to be going along well. I don't want to stand out. And so there's this, this inadequacy, 
fear. And it comes to a fear of failure often. One of the things we wrestle with is not knowing enough or the ability to communicate. Uh, these are fears that lots of men and women have wrestled with. I want to leave Daniel for, for just a little bit because there's one person in particular that really and just really epitomizes this, I think, and that is a man that we consider a great man in the Bible, one of the greats, Moses. And in Exodus, we're going to um, look at some of Moses' fears. And Moses has, has three great fears, uh, that are at least that are, are spoken of. And the first one, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 11. Uh, and we remember this story, Moses in the burning bush, and he's saying, listen, you're going to go down and you're going to lead my people out of Egypt. And so, so this ensues, this, this conversation over chapter 3 and chapter 4 about Moses telling God, no, that ain't going to happen. And God telling Moses, yes, it is. <laughs> and there's this struggle between them. And, and so the first thing Moses says to God, he says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I? I am inadequate. He has these feelings of inadequacy. I'm insignificant. Who am I? Maybe his family wasn't that important or whatever it is that, that he felt he was personally inadequate. Maybe it was his, his failure back when he had killed somebody. Who am I? I'm nobody. How can you use me? Whatever it was. I'm a shepherd. I've been, I've been tending sheep for, for 40 years in, in, in the desert here. Who am I? So he has inadequacy. Uh, we jump to Exodus chapter 4, verse 1. The uh, fear of rejection this is interesting. He says, Then Moses answered, Behold, they will not believe me. They won't listen to my voice. They will say, The Lord did not appear to you. And this strikes at the heart of a lot of, I think, a lot of our fears that as we leave and we, we go out and we talk with people or, or we try to influence people in some way and, and we say, they're not going to listen to me. If I tell them, they're not going to believe me. The, the message that is, is maybe the message is inadequate or, or however, there's no, and you know those people, you know people in your... What's the point of, of talking to them about it? Because I know they're not going to listen. This is what Moses said. They're not going to believe me. I'm going to tell people, yeah, God made us and, and all these things. And there's a world out there telling them all sorts of different stories about where we come from. And, and God figures in none of it. They're not going to believe me. So why bother? Once again, God says it's not your prerogative to bother with whether they will believe you or not. Let me handle that. You just have a job to do. I'm giving you the job to do, and I will handle the results of it. So Moses is not done with his objections. Uh, so he turns to one more in Exodus chapter 4, verse 10. He says, Moses said to the Lord, Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant. No, I am slow of speech, and tongue. And we wrestle with the inability, with inadequacy in, in terms of the ability to state what we believe, don't we? What if they ask me a question that I don't really know how to answer? You know, I, I know it for myself, but whenever I try to phrase it 
or, or put it into some explanation, I mess it all up. Right? Don't we all have that fear? Preachers have that fear. Uh, maybe more than most. Because we're supposed to know all the answers. And we don't. And someone asks us a question like, uh, I've got a piece of paper on the wall that says I'm supposed to know that, but I don't. Right? And, and so what, what happens? And, and, uh, and you can be around some very educated people. And it's in, a little intimidating. What happens if I, if I don't present? Well, what are they going to think of the church? Or what, what are, uh, and we get all these fears. See, all the fears come in. And it deals with personal inadequacy. What we fear. And I think a lot of these things are going through the minds of Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. I think for the remainder of the sermon, I'm just going to call them these three men, if you don't mind that. But when it comes to the moment, they conquer whatever fears that they might have had. And I want to look at how they do that. They kept in mind the ultimate authority. And in doing that, the ultimate, and, and we're going to look at how they do that, but there is a, I want to look at outcome versus substance. We, we've talked about this a little bit. We've noted the morality of a choice, how that's not determined by the physical effect. Right? The outcome of something doesn't determine the substance. We've observed Daniel, who remained ab- uh, resolute regardless of his po- personal vulnerability. Um, However, up until this point, what we've seen is that the threat was only a potential threat. There was something that they might have been making up in their mind. We didn't know that, uh, for example, the, the, the man that comes to Daniel and says, listen, we don't, we don't want to eat this food. He's like, you know, this, could, this bad thing could happen to me. There's a potential threat. Well, maybe so, maybe no. Just let's, let's see how it works out. A lot of times we make up danger in our mind that doesn't exist, right? We're good at inventing things. However, these three guys have been clearly given an ultimatum. In chapter 3, verse 15, he says, Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the instruments, fall down and worship the image, it would be well and good for you. If you do not, you will be immediately thrown in to a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God that will save you out of my hands? There is a direct ultimatum here. There's, it, it, and you go back and read how this is. I mean, it's in triplicate and quadruplicate. Here it is. He repeats it over and over. It is Word, I mean, word for word, there's a bunch of verses that are identical. Nebuchadnezzar is leaving them. You can't say you didn't get the memo. You are going to be burned alive. 
if you do not do this. This is no longer a potential threat. There is an inference here that in this large group of people there were only three necks sticking up. I, I don't believe that. I'm going to come to that in just a second. But they're certainly in the vast minority. And so when we talk about uh, recognizing the ultimate authority, I want to bring into this really what you know versus what you feel. Expectation of, of them. And I, I ended where we ended in this passage reading this because I wanted, even though we know the end of the story, I wanted us to get a feel of how they were thinking at this moment. We know the end of the story. We've read this a million times. We know. And, and it's easy for us to have this... Extra, listen, just, uh, you know, just step in and there's going to be another one there walking around. You're going to get out just fine. That's easy for us because we know the end of the story. They don't know the end of the story. Miracles are miracles because they don't happen that often. Miracles are amazing because they come and they're not expected because that's just not reality. We read the Bible and we have this Bible and we see the string of miracles, amazing things throughout. But understand that what we're looking at as these miracles is strung out over thousands and thousands of years. They don't come along every day. Think of something amazing that's happened to you that you say, oh, this is a miracle. Well, for every one of those, you can think of a similar situation that didn't turn out so great. Because it's, it, it just... It, and we... It is hard for us to pick that one time and go, yeah, but I know this happened then. And this is the situation that they find themselves in. The chances, without knowing the end of the story, the chances of them stepping into there and, and, and having it all turn out good are not really statistically good for them. That's why I end where we end. It's easy for us to expect great things of them because we know how it turned out. But the realistic viewpoint is that they're going to die. That's realism. That's what they feel. But they don't focus on what they feel. They focus on what they know. What do they know? Verse 16 through 18. He says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer to you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. There are several things that they know. The first is that mercy is not a guarantee. You are not guaranteed a good outcome. I mean, a good short-term outcome. You are not guaranteed, if you stick your neck out, you're not guaranteed that it's going to work out 
the way you want it to. They know that. And they accept what they know. I know this. I'm heading into this and this is what I know. They acknowledge that. The second thing that they focus on is God's identity. He is all-powerful. Whether God will or won't come through for us in the short term doesn't change whether or not He's able to. Notice that. They say, God is able, however, if He doesn't, it makes no difference. If He doesn't do this thing for us, it hasn't changed with he, who He was. A lot of people think, well, um, well God can't exist. Listen to the, 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 the things that people use to argue against the existence of God. They'll say things, well, if God exists, why do bad things happen to good people? Whether bad things happen to good people or not doesn't change whether God exists or not. He exists if He exists. And if He doesn't, He doesn't. The outcome doesn't determine the identity. The identity is always the same. How God acts in a particular scenario for whatever reasons He chooses is up to Him. And so they focus on His identity. Uh, The third thing they focus on is what they know about God. What He requires. God requires allegiance. And the situation you find yourself in does not change that. They are in front of a burning, fiery furnace. And they recognize God requires allegiance. It doesn't mean, it it makes no difference if my skin is boiled off of my bones. He requires allegiance. That does not change. That is hard for us to accept. So the last thing about their viewpoint and ours is the validity of suffering, understanding the validity of suffering. Our instinctive view is that death defeats the message. Because if I'm dead, I can't share a message. Right? That seems to be logical. Death defeats the message. However, God has a different view. God says that the suffering church is a successful church. And so I want to look at the proper view of suffering. First, the proper view of suffering. No matter who you talk to, a Christian, non-Christian, everybody wants to impact the world. In some way, I want to leave behind something. Right? And what is it all about? It's all about an example. And what do you mean by that? Uh, Well, you cannot impact the world without leaving an example. The most impactful example, in this situation, if you think about it, uh, is really we have the same goal. These men had the same goal as Nebuchadnezzar, and that was an example. Right? It's just how people view an example is a little bit different. I do not believe that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, out of all these, I mean, it says that they selected a plane because there's all these people that they could fit there. And throughout history, there have been a lot of people who thought that they were the only ones and find out, oh, they're not the only ones. 
No, no, there's actually, uh, sorry, um, there's actually 7,000 who have not bowed the knee. <laughs> right? we, we find that over and over and over again. People think, oh, I'm, I am the only one. No, you're not. But the Chaldeans, I believe, picked these three men to make an example out of them. They were looking for the opportunity. I've often wondered where Daniel was. Why doesn't this say Daniel? I don't know. I know if Daniel was here, he didn't bow the knee. I know that. Uh, in Daniel 3.3, 3, by the way, uh, I'm pretty sure he was here. Uh, because, or, excuse me, yeah, uh, Daniel in, in chapter 3, Verse 3, he, he says, listen, everybody, and we read the triplicate verses about how many people were there. Every governor, blah, 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 from every province, they were there. This was important. Daniel was there. Did Daniel bow? No, I don't. Why isn't he mentioned? Maybe he was a little bit too powerful for the Chaldeans to, to think they could. Maybe he was a little close to Nebuchadnezzar, like, we, we won't have much success. We'll, but we're going to make an example out of somebody. And they picked these three men to make an example. Well, guess what? What do we want to be? We want to be an example. What does the world want to do? They want to make an example out of us. Wonderful. We have the same goal. So roll with it. It's all about example. Daniel 3.8 <clears throat> It says, therefore, at that time, the Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. And we've talked about this. They were jealous and all these things. It did not take any time for them to try to figure out how to get back in Nebuchadnezzar's good graces. They're going to make an example. They're like, and they pointed out, hey, these are, the, these are the men that he's put in these positions. Hey, there's some governors you have. So we see the proper view of suffering, but I want to look at the proper view of success also. And it comes down to a simple word, which is choice. And we've got a couple of words up here, and I want to show you the relationship with them. Not a choice between four things, limit, magnitude, persuasion, or audience. However, they are competing views. We, we get a, a choice of what we want a lot of times. Maybe not always, but a, a choice of what we want. You can choose what you limit, and what has magnitude. You can limit your persuasion and target a broad audience. Right? And it talks about our nat that's our natural view. If, if, if I'm dead, what, what kind of, a, uh, what kind of a effect can I have? I, I've got this, I, I've limited my view to whatever people up until then I've influenced. And, and, uh, and, and so, why not save my life so I can convince more people? You know, th these men could have had that, like, listen, let's just, let's just bow the knee today, and tomorrow we, we'll live on, and we can go our own separate way, and we can convince people, and, and spend the rest of our time convincing people of the truth. But really, you're going to limit your persuasion. Because what kind of a message are you going to be able to communicate to them? Because you've already sold out. And they're going to say, yeah, but you sold out. So you're going to limit your persuasion, and you're going to give a whole bunch of people a very small degree of conviction. 
Or you can say, listen, if I make this choice, I'm going to limit my audience because my life is short and I can't affect anybody else tomorrow. But the ones that I affect are going to be rock solid. Let me tell you something. If these three men walk into that fire, even if they died, even if they died, there were going to be people that would stand up the next day because of what they observed. And the history of the church has always been that way. Rome was 10% Christian, approximately, when they would be put on stakes and burned in Nero's gardens. The suffering church is the successful church. And we don't understand in our natural view, when we, when we give into the natural view, we do not properly associate success and suffering. If you allow the premise, then you lose the platform. If you don't differentiate yourself in word or in behavior, you are not gaining more influence. You are limiting what you can accomplish through your example because you will have no leverage. You will have no leverage to pull somebody from what they do because you're no different. I have to be different. We're going to conclude with with a thought. In our fear, whatever the fear is that you have, we all have different fears. We have different lives we lead. We have different relationships with people around us. We have different relationships with people in our own family. Identify your fear. And then I want to leave you with one phrase. The step out. Do not be afraid of those fears. The fears are real. I'm not saying don't feel the fear. Because we can't avoid the emotion. What I mean is step out in what you know. Not in what you feel. The feelings are there and they're going to be there. When, when, when God says fear not, he's not saying don't feel the emotion fear because you can't avoid that. He's saying don't let that control your action. We deal with fears a bunch of different ways. We procrastinate. I'll deal with that tomorrow. I won't feel the fear until I have to. And if I cannot feel the fear today by not doing anything, then so, so be it. And then, then tomorrow I'll deal with that one. So we procrastinate. We, we deal with fear a bunch of different ways. But eventually, like these men, you come to the point sooner or later where you have to make a choice. What will be if I step out? Focus on what you know. There are people here this morning that wrestle with a number of things that I don't know. What will be if as Travis leads a song, you step out into that aisle and make a decision 
that will change the rest of your life. What will people say? What actions will be expected of me tomorrow? Maybe it's getting back on track. Hitting the reset button. Whatever that is, this is the time to let your head stick up and to take that first step towards God.